Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. So here's a wait, wait, don't tell me style quiz from this week's news. Coming up later on the show, when you hear an angry, red-faced official say that there will be a day of reckoning, is he talking about A, the standoff between an armed, self-styled militia and the federal government in Oregon, or B, the pending decision by General Electric to pick up and move out of Connecticut, or C, the 2016 home schedule of the AA Richmond Flying Squirrels? Find out this hour on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, where we'll talk about those stories and also two editorial page notes, one in The New York Times praising Connecticut's Second Chance Society, the other not quite apologizing for a story that ran in the New Britain Herald. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us, as always, is the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Colin McEnroe. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Joining us from the Connecticut Mirror is their Capitol Bureau Chief, Mark Pazniokas. Hello once again, Paz. Hello. I just want you to know, I tried to buzz in on the question. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, the buzzers, they're actually on the fritz right now. I'm sorry. And also joining us is Evelyn Simeon. She's Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and the Institute of Africana Studies at the University of Connecticut. Welcome back, Evelyn. Thanks. Uh, Connecticut was well represented during President Obama's speech on guns yesterday. After Connecticut passed a law requiring background checks and gun safety courses, gun deaths decreased by 40 percent. 40 percent. Aside from citing Connecticut, the president was also introduced by the father of one of the children killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And another father of a victim, Jimmy Green, was visible behind him during the speech. We'll go through a bit of what President Obama announced yesterday as part of his executive orders around guns. But first of all, Colin, what did you see in that announcement from from President Obama yesterday? Obviously, on Morning Edition, we talked an awful lot about the emotion that the president showed, but what else did you hear from him? Well, there's a big cutoff between the actual substance of the remarks and then the kinds of reactions that they occasion. I mean, this is pretty weak tea in a lot of ways. I mean, there really isn't a lot of substance that, I mean, and I'm not criticizing him, I just don't think within the rubric of executive action, I don't think there's that much that he can really do. It might be pretty close to the limit of what he can do, but it's still not very much. So, I mean, to, to listen to the howls coming from gun rights groups, uh, from Fox News, Fox News even going the extra classless route of making fun of President Obama for crying and suggesting that he had raw onions at the podium and all this kind of stuff. I mean, but to listen to all the whimpering and caterwauling about this, you would think that he'd propose some kind of massive gun takeaway or something like that. And, and no, he's talking about beef, beefing up the ATF. He's talking about essentially working on the semantics of back of background check requirements. I mean, this isn't he's not rewriting them. It's in what what we're really talking about. And I'm, I assume we'll get into this a little bit is the question of what's a gun dealer. And this really gets worked out these days at a semantic level. You're not a gun dealer if you can persuade the world that you're a hobbyist. Uh, and and 
you know, he's basically asking uh, law enforcement to say, well, don't believe them if they have what looks like a professional website, if they have business cards, if they sell guns in their new packaging, they're probably not hobbyists. But even, you know, even under President Obama's most ideal world as a result of what was announced yesterday, if you inherited a collection of 300 guns, you could just sell them without background checks or anything. You'd be fine, and President Obama would say you were fine. Everybody would say you were fine. And focusing on the sellers rather than the buyers is a little bit of a problem here because you could sell those 300 guns to somebody who was really crazy or dangerous or had a criminal background uh, without anybody knowing it because there wouldn't be the background check. So the stuff that got announced yesterday, it's all very worthy, but it's not much. And, and, and maybe it's not that much, Paz. He certainly cites states like the Connecticut that have already strengthened their their state gun laws. What do you see in what the president put out there? Because there's a there's a few different parts to this. What Collins talked about already around background checks, some around enforcement. We'll also talk more about mental health and and the push for new gun technology. But what all did you hear? I heard a politically significant speech and uh, to announce a relatively insignificant policy change. Um, look, this is the dawn of an election year. Um, the president made clear he's done. He's not on the ballot anymore. Um, I think we saw a very human uh, side of the president. We saw frustration. We saw emotion despite the, the snickering about the tears. Um, I was in the auditorium at Newtown High School when the president spoke shortly after the Sandy Hook attack. And I think anybody – who has spent any time um, reading about or or observing what transpired then would would take the president as showing some sincere emotion. I mean, that, that was, as Collins said, kind of no class to suggest that's what that was about. Well, yeah, I, I think we can all agree that if we're going to snicker about anyone crying over dead children, then perhaps we probably shouldn't um, – we shouldn't say quite so much as we do on cable television news, and we can kind of leave it at that. Evelyn, do you see the same thing? So far, Colin and Paz are saying um, a good political speech, certainly a lot of emotion, and will fire up many, many people who have been asking him to do this for some time, but maybe not a lot of substance. you see the same thing? Well, there's a few things I heard. As a political scientist, first and foremost, what I didn't miss was a direct appeal to the American people to vote those elected officials out of office who would not rally behind this legislation. Um, First and foremost, I think the president said we are, one, going to recognize those victims. We are also going to celebrate the heroes. These people will not die in vain, and we will celebrate their legacy, their lives. And in this way, even though, um, you know, the people in the roundtable here have suggested, you know, this is really a insignificant or minor policy change. I think for those who have lost lives, their loved ones, their family members, it has great um, significant meaning. It, it, Mark, yeah, Mark, go Mark Barden, yeah. who introduced him, the, the father of Daniel Barden, you, you must remember he also spoke in the Rose Garden in 2013 when the president acknowledged the failure to do anything broader on background checks. Um, One of the things, I mean, I think politically this could turn out to be significant, but 
the, the ground that the president is trying to move this debate to is really the safest ground possible. Background checks have the greatest support in the United States, even among gun owners. But, but, isn't, that, but isn't that smart? I mean, at the end of the day, all this oh, other stuff isn't going to change. The safe ground is the only ground in which you may be able to – and we'll, we'll hear from actually someone we talked to yesterday who is a, a gun rights activist in just a moment. It seems as though there is some ground in which we can all agree. Or at least some people agree, right? Well, and and it moves the debate to where gun owners and the NRA, in in a sense, have always said it should be. Away from banning – trying to ban specific guns, trying to decide what's a good gun or a bad gun and moving the debate to who owns guns. Now, the the gun lobby tries to have that in terms of looking at the mentally ill and, of course, the president did – mentioned something there, which uh, it'll be interesting how that unfolds, the idea of using social security data to make that part of a gun check, uh, whether or not you have a mental illness background. I think that's going to scare some civil libertarians. But um, but this is supposedly the common ground, looking at the people, not the firearms. Well, he, he could have gone harder on this. I mean, he could have, to me... I mean, one of the things he could have done is created a, a numerical threshold that makes you a gun dealer. Um, so you could, look, you sell more than 10 guns a year or 20. I mean, pick a number. But you know, then you're a gun dealer. You're not a hobbyist anymore. So that's mm-hmm. the hardest thing you can do on background checks, probably within the scope of executive action. He, he didn't quite go out to that limit. But back to what Evelyn said, I think this is important. This is partly a speech about what happens when Congress won't do anything, right? This is That's part of the speech. Congress won't do anything. Welcome to my life, Obama's saying. Uh, Congress won't do anything, so this is what I can do. And if you don't like that, if you don't think it's enough, vote differently. Um, and and I think Paz is making an important point too, is which is that if you ask people a very blunt poll question, like do you favor greater restrictions on gun ownership or changes to the gun laws or whatever, um, more of them are going to say no, I don't, than are going to say yes, I do. If you ask them very specific questions about background checks, if if you even ask them a question that informs them that you know forty percent or so of the guns sold in America are probably not, or at least there are forty percent more guns than the ones that are that are background checked, millions of guns are sold every year with no background check, most of them, more of them will move over to the other side. So with polling, it's important what question you ask. ask, And I think people don't even realize the shoddy shape of our gun laws. Evelyn? I think also what I heard in in yesterday's announcement was also an emphasis placed on not just background checks, but also smart technology when it comes to guns, Mm -hmm. you know, who can also who is also the authorized user who can possess the gun and actually operate the gun which i thought was pretty smart to place some sort of emphasis on technology well, and I think another thing is, Paz, as you talk about the things that might be safe ground, background checks is one that is, is safer, certainly, because Americans do support that. When it comes to information about gun deaths and it comes to technology surrounding making guns safer, those are two things that the gun lobby has also fought against. It's impossible to get information about gun deaths. It's impossible to do independent studies funded by federal uh, dollars on gun deaths and actually treating um gun crime like a health issue. Those are two things, too, that get a little closer to this middle ground that I I don't know if we're going to get everyone over there, but at least it's a little bit easier than some of the other things we're talking about. As somebody who's covered this stuff for for better than 20 years, I'm always struck at how difficult it is to pass meaningful legislation that actually 
bans a specific firearm or dictates how a firearm can be constructed, what safety measures. Um, It seems that the most successful gun legislation uh, that we've seen in Connecticut and elsewhere has to do with the purchasers of just doing simple screening. And the statistic that the president mentioned yesterday was based on a Johns Hopkins study. And, and, And it was not a study of the law passed in 2013. It was a study about a law passed in the mid-90s that really put Connecticut on the, on the road to the universal background checks we have today. They, Connecticut adopted significant background checks in the mid-1990s, and the Johns Hopkins study concluded, and you know, cause and effect is a difficult thing. I mean, the real academics are very wary at times. I mean, there have been other studies where uh, this has been laid out and, and people just take great pains not to draw a cause and effect. But, but in any event, the statistics seem to indicate some connection. But, you know, Connecticut's one of nine states where the law is set up in a way where if you meet certain requirements, the police may issue a permit as opposed to the majority of the states where if you meet certain qualifications, the police shall issue a permit in the states that require such a permit. I want to quickly go to the phones. Jacob is calling from Seymour. Hi, Jacob. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hey, guys. I just want to preface my comment saying I, you know, I am a gun enthusiast. And uh, aside from my comment, I do agree with pretty much everything in the executive order. Uh, the background checks are just a no-brainer. Um, but I do just want to make a comment, get your guys' thoughts on this, is when we talk about the gun violence epidemic in America, you know, the saying often comes up that, uh, you know, no other developed country has gun violence rates like we do. But when you look at a measure of income inequality and, like, the Gini coefficient, we rank over, like, with El Salvador and Turkmenistan. So I think we have a poverty issue. We have a crime issue. And um, we'll, we'll never get anywhere till we address that. I, and I, I would, I'm going to get uh, some, some comments from our panelists, and I really appreciate your call, Jacob. I'll just ask. I think the other thing, though, that some of those same statistics show is just the overwhelming number of, of guns that are owned in America far outstrips those of other countries. It's just it's, it, the numbers kind of bear out the notion that the more guns you have, the more people die by gun deaths. And it's just sort of statistically uh, a fact. The biggest public well, health. Once, I just want to get to Jacob's comment. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I, I see those the statistics as well. Um, but additionally, you can look at a state-by-state state basis. I mean, we're comparing America to, you know, Switzerland or Sweden where there's, you know, there are high gun rates. But you look on a state-by-state state basis, if you break down in an income inequality by state, like very lax states like New Hampshire with – not as much of a income inequality don't have the gun rate deaths to say your your states with more strict gun laws like California, but they also have some of the highest income inequality in in the nation. Well, well, um, and J- Jacob, thank you for making that point. I really appreciate your phone call. I'd like to get a couple of thoughts on this, and I'll go to Evelyn first. Well, my first thought has to do with the income inequality that exists here in Connecticut, which is um, pretty stark. Um, nationally. And so that's what comes to mind. Yet we become the model or the example for how to um, make change happen when it comes to gun violence. And so I think that is something significant and related to his comment. Colin? 
Um, I guess, first of all, Jacob seems like a really nice guy. Uh, on the other hand, I do feel as though one of the things that other gun enthusiasts do is they sort of throw these things around as red herrings. Well, the real problem is poverty. The real problem is mental illness. The real problem is crime. And then it turns out that really politically they oppose well, we take crime out of the equation, but they're not showing up for budget hearings to beef up our mental health budget. They're not showing up for public hearings to address income inequality. In fact, they're for the most part voting for candidates who don't want to do anything about that, who don't want to spend money on social services, who don't want to spend money fighting poverty. I'm not saying that's Jacob, but I think when I hear the gun lobby talk about that, when gun enthusiasts talk about that, I sort of think these are empty words. You, The next time there's a hearing over at the state cap, about one of these issues, you're not going to be there. The only time you bring these issues up is so that you can keep keep your guns. And I, I think to, to, to part of what Jacob's talking about there, um, from the beginning of the conversation that Governor Malloy has been having, uh, has about this over the f- few, few years since uh, Sandy Hook, he's talked about the flow of guns into the state. And one of the things that I think President Obama is trying to address is um, the fact that we have these state-by-state laws. The illegal guns that end up on the streets of a city like Hartford were sold and bought legally somewhere else, most likely, across the the country. And and the laws being different in Virginia, as Governor Malloy has often cited, actually has a real impact in our cities here in Connecticut. No, that's true. And other states allow uh, multiple purchases without background checks. Uh, Straw purchases are common in some of the states on the I-95 corridor. But I will say I think Jacob is absolutely right if you are a sociologist trying to draw cause and effect between, uh, you know, as to what produces gun violence. You know, New Hampshire, North Dakota, those are states uh, with very permissive gun laws and the gun homicide rate is incredibly low. But then you get to really what, what I think what Colin is saying, so what? What does that debate mean? It's a great debate for the academics, but if you're looking at what policymakers want to do, you know, I think that's why I keep going back to background checks is probably the area where the debate should be, and and not don't you know don't go down those rabbit holes of what is the cause and effect. I mean, will a specific law would a specific law have prevented Sandy? Lo- Hook. Would a specific law have prevented San Bernardino? You will never win those debates. You will never get resolution in those debates. So I think you, people need to step back and just say, OK, what are the common sense uh, precautions we can take that don't violate the Second Amendment? Do, do you have a last thought on this, Evelyn? Because I, I want to hear from, from someone else on this uh, that we talked to yesterday. But I think I, I don't want to travel too far from this point, though, about uh, you know, when we hear from President Obama in his speech yesterday, in one breath he says, you know, I get angry every time I hear, I think about those 20 kids who are, are murdered, and he pauses and he's crying. And then he says, and this happens on the streets of Chicago every day, the city where, where he calls home, you know, it's a very different story, but there's still hundreds and hundreds of people getting murdered a year. I mean, this is an opportunity not to necessarily attack or criticize the president in the way that many Republicans or people on the far right have with respect to this issue. It is another opportunity to remember those who sacrificed their lives in the face of tragedy. It's an opportunity to um, celebrate and honor their memories. And that's what 
at the end of the day, the focus should be on. And if the issue is background checks, one that the majority of us can rally behind, then let it be so. Well, and, and to that point, I just want to listen to a voice. Uh, Harriet Jones, our business reporter, talked with uh, Scott Wilson, who's president of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League yesterday. Here's a bit of what he had to say. Nothing that was mentioned by the president this morning had anything to do with increasing criminal penalties for straw purchasers or straw sellers. There was no mention of increased penalties for individuals who commit violent crimes with firearms. The president speaks of loopholes, and this is the biggest loophole. Criminals walking and not being prosecuted for crimes sends a wrong message. So in some ways he's essentially saying that the president didn't go far enough in uh, some of the the things we've already discussed that may... uh close some of those loopholes. He also went on to talk about uh, where he maybe agrees with the president. If he wants to hire more federal agents to expedite background checks, that could be a good thing because there is a sense of frustration from law-abiding purchasers of firearms when they get unnecessarily delayed or denied. I'll just say, Colin, in in the last minute that we have here, that struck me as something quite different than I've heard from some gun rights uh, advocates in the past. Well, I mean, you have to sort of parse that sentence a little bit, though. He's saying, yeah, we need more agents so people's purchases can get expedited. He's not saying we need more agents so we so we can more successfully screen out bad purchasers. The, right now, the federal government per, uh, screens, I believe, there's 63,000 background checks done a day, which is a real lot. I mean, it's kind of amazing with the workforce that they do, that they, that they can do it. They do need a lot more uh, agents to do it. And, and also, Obama talked about a computer upgrade. My guess is the computers right now aren't as sophisticated as the computers using being used by DraftKings and Fantasy Duel. You know, that in, in fact, Obama talked about having a computer, computer system that could be running 24 hours a day doing these things. There's an incredible volume, 63,000 a day. Well, an incredible volume. And whenever uh, announcements like this are made, Paz, we always see the volume goes up. Uh, stock in gun companies up today, a lot more people going out and buying guns today. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm not saying Scott Wilson is one of these people. I know Scott, and, and I, I, he's very sincere when he talked about trying to get better criminal laws. But the fact is that the gun lobby has played a major role in making sure that the ATF does not have greater resources to do, to do gun cases and also to make sure that the penalties – on illegal dealing are not higher. That's a fact. You know, there was a case in Connecticut years ago where there was a correction officer who held a federal firearm license who sold 110 guns out of the trunk of his car on the streets of Hartford to gangbangers. Um, his guns were implicated in murders, uh, other shootings, and he got the maximum that he could get under the law, which was about seven years. If he had had 100 rocks of crack, he would have been away for 30 years. And that's one of the issues we're actually going to be talking about coming up in our next segment after this break. Some praise coming for the Malloy administration around the Second Chance Society, thinking about the ways in which we prosecute people for things that really matter in society. We're also going to be talking a little bit more about guns, specifically the guns being held by guys out in Oregon in the middle of the woods. We're talking today with Mark Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror, Colin McEnroe from the Colin McEnroe Show, and Evelyn Simeon from the University of Connecticut. It's The Wheelhouse here on Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Very excited to announce that in two weeks we'll have our second-ever Wheelhouse Uncensored event. We'll be doing it live at the Tavern in downtown New Haven. We'll be talking about the 2016 presidential election and other things in the news with some of our Wheelhouse regulars. We'll be posting more details about the event on our Facebook and Twitter pages at Where We Live, but it's coming up again uh, Tuesday night, the 19th. It's uh, coming up in just a couple weeks. We're very excited about it. Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show, will be there uh, along with me. Hey, Colin, what's in your show today? Well, first of all, I want to say we will say bad words down in New Haven. Yeah, we, that's why it's called Wheelhouse Uncensored. It's, it's really it's your chance to hear me and Colin right. use foul language. And my show today kind of ties into that. It's a show about our changing attitudes towards what's shocking. What is shock? I mean, uh, years ago, decades ago, Robert Maplethorpe was exhibited at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. There were lines around the block to get in, but been to get in, but there are also massive protests coincided with the, an era when Karen Finley, the performance artist, was also getting undressed and covering herself with chocolate. Karen Finley will be joining us today, uh, fully clothed. And uh, we're going to talk about the fact that now Maplethorpe's up at the Athenaeum and no one cares. <laughs> well, uh, so. It's actually, I went, I went to go see it and, and, and people walk, walk past one of the, uh, let's just say, more scandalous pictures that caused such a sensation uh, some years ago. And we're like, yeah, well, okay, yeah. very good. Let's go and get some lunch. Right. <laughs> it, it is changing times indeed. It's coming up on the Colin McEnroe Show. Also joining us today in the wheelhouse, Mark Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror and Evelyn Simeon from the University of Connecticut. Just very quickly, we spent the entire first segment talking about President Obama's new executive orders on guns. It comes in the midst of a presidential election and another situation in Oregon where armed occupiers have taken over a federal building. It raises a a huge issue of double standards, how we talk about the people who are doing this, whether or not we use words like terrorists. I don't know, Evelyn, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Colin spent some time talking about it on a show on Monday. When you see the way this standoff in Oregon is being handled by the federal government, by local officials, and by the news media. What do you think? Oh, my gosh. In <laughs> in some ways, I want to laugh because I think the latest strategy is to um, deprive them of heat, right, to deprive them of power and energy so they'll freeze and hopefully uh, cave in and succumb to pressure. Um, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is why are they called quote-unquote, occupiers of a federal building. Um, I think to myself, um, there is a double standard here. You've heard in at least if you're up with social media, there's been a lot of debate and critique of the way in which news organizations have, in fact, called them occupiers versus terrorists versus thugs versus criminals. Because if this was a group of black men that are armed, let's say the Black Panther Party, this show would have been shut down a long time ago, and there would have been some bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll say, Colin, you you addressed this on your program on Monday. NPR has a has a note out from Mark Memmott, their sort of guru of how to talk about issues like this. He says, don't call them a militia. They don't resemble an army. It's not a standoff. The government isn't doing anything. Militants is a better word than protesters because a militant is ready and willing to fight, which these men are. Armed occupiers is a better term, says NPR. I will say I don't think they're terrorists. They haven't hurt or killed anybody yet. But I'm okay calling them thugs. How about you? I, I don't. I to me, this is a less interesting. I mean, I'm far, I'm far fine with militants or whatever. This is a less interesting question than how do you resolve a situation like this? And and I actually do um, think. First of all, the one thing that I don't think we do want is bloodshed. So when this yes. is com- when this is compared to how the authorities handle protests involving black protesters, my thought is, well, that's the wrong way, right? We all agree that they handle black protesters the wrong way very frequently. So, I mean, I don't understand the insistence that this be done also in the wrong way. I want this done the right way, which is 
I think actually the strategy right now is really good. Make it boring, make it uncomfortable, make it not exciting. Don't give them a lot of rhetoric. Don't give them uh, martyr status. Uh, just make this a very boring, uncomfortable thing that they're doing. And I would assume eventually they will stand down. Uh, I, I don't see any point in doing anything more than that. They, they want confrontation. That's why they're there. So don't give it to them. Look, law enforcement's approach to this were formed in large measure by, by three high-profile ends to sieges, two involving um, you know, you know, white – I don't know how to describe them. I mean, you know, at Waco, the David Koresh group, um, also Ruby Ridge, which ended tragically. The deaths of children, the deaths of, of men and women. Neither of those turned out well. At Ruby Ridge, the death of a, of a U.S. marshal. Uh, and then you had the situation in Philadelphia with, uh, you know, Operation Move, where uh, the city literally bombed an apartment uh, where there were a bunch of, I guess, there were black separatists who were holed up. You know, my memory fails in that case. But, they were, you know, Wilson, I believe Wilson Good it was, it was the mayor at the time. So uh, I, I would hate to see the issue, the very legitimate issue of how law enforcement responds to incidents involving blacks and conflate that with what seems to be a smart tactically, tactical approach. Um, there's no question there is an issue in this country about how law enforcement reacts and at times overreacts to issues involving black. You know, Tamar Rice in Cleveland, you know, if that was a white 12-year-old, would that have ended differently? I'm guessing it probably would have. But uh, but t- I mean, tactically, they seem to be doing the smart thing here. Uh, Evelyn, last thought on this? I think there are politics in naming. So I'm I'm reluctant to say this is less interesting because, you know, to Black Lives Matter, that interest group in particular. And notice I named them as a interest group versus militants or thugs or criminals. Um, members of that organization have Ph.D.s, advanced degrees and They'll get arrested for, let's say, blocking a highway to um, recognize the names of those who have lost their lives opposite law enforcement. And so those are activists. Those are demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators who will get locked up and serve time, whether it's 24 hours or 48 hours. They will be arrested on site in that moment. Yeah, and I would say, first of all, I'm never in favor. I mean, I thought the term thug was hurled around in Missouri in a way that was absolutely wrong. But then I just, I'm not, when I say I'm not interested, I'm not, I don't think anything is accomplished or not accomplished by calling the Oregon protesters thugs. I mean, you know, I don't think the Missouri people should have been called thugs. I don't care whether the Oregon people are called thugs. <laughs> um, and of course, what's interesting is if we were doing this, this talk show uh, maybe out in Oregon or another state in the West, w- there probably would be a little bit more of a conversation about whether the federal government actually did in some ways overreach in sending some ranchers back to prison after uh, after spending some time having to do with a federal land dispute. And there's probably a lot of questions about how the federal government treats people uh, in, uh, out west. But that's maybe for another conversation. Uh, getting back to some of the issues we talked about earlier this past weekend, the New York Times ran an editorial about Connecticut's Second Chance Society. In it, it says, over the past 12 months, the state has become a remarkably productive laboratory for justice reform. As Mr. Malloy 
Malloy, our governor, continues to push for government transparency, societal mercy, and individual responsibility. This is something we've talked an awful lot about. And look, just getting the stamp of approval from the New York Times column doesn't really do, I don't think, much for the uh, Malloy administration. But since he is running national campaigns for governors and since he's out there stumping for Hillary Clinton, it can't hurt. Yeah, and I also think, reading the editorial, I thought, you know, maybe I'm guilty of not seeing the forest for the trees sometimes, too. That, you know, when when it's all laid out there, I mean, we've we've said all along that His Second Chance Society is an impressive initiative, that it's basically doing things that need to be done and talking about things in a way they need to be talked about. And seeing it written about that way so comprehensively in you know, kind of an outs- with an outside set of eyes, the outside set of eyes of the New York Times, I thought, you know, m- maybe we don't even give him enough credit. I mean, we've given him plenty of credit for this, but maybe we don't give him enough credit. The way that he's looking at it across the spectrum from penology to law enforcement uh, to the even to the socioeconomic component, which is probably the toughest one to address, it's pretty good, you know? I mean, we pick on him all the time, but uh, this is pretty good. The governor starts his... Six year is governor tomorrow. Um, we'll have a piece based in large measure on an interview I did with the governor between the holidays where we, we talked about that. Uh, his social agenda is the more successful piece of his legacy so far. Uh, it's the stuff he'll be talking about uh, in certain states uh, when he campaigns on behalf of, of candidates for, for governor. Um, but here in Connecticut – he, I think, is colored more completely by the fiscal situation. Uh, the Democratic base here is angry with him over some of the spending cuts and some of the fiscal choices he's made on taxes. So I think the achievements on you know, repeal of the death penalty, uh, higher minimum wage, paid sick days, uh, and, and again, the criminal justice reforms, which are significant. And by the way, they, they have bipartisan support and they, they have uh, support from a lot of conservatives, both here and across the country. Although I, I just, I just want to say I will be interested to see in the legislative elections that are coming up right now to what degree – the Republicans try to Willie Horton him on some of this stuff. I I, I agree well, that he does I, have, or they're they're yeah, not him, but the Democrats absolutely. And but having uh, the two leaders of of uh, the two Republican leaders of the legislature vote for those packages, that it was a good sign. Well, should blunt it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Evelyn. Ironically, I think this very issue isn't that far removed or divorced from the conversation we had previously about a double standard in news organizations and the way in which they frame um, the issues at hand. And so on the one hand, we talk about um, the naming of, let's say, activists related to Black Lives Matter being dubbed thugs and criminals. But there's also this double standard in the criminal justice um, system when it comes to sentencing. And so ironically, the two issues, insofar as we think about the way in which the media not only influences what we think about, but how we think about these issues with regard to social justice and who is a quote unquote criminal and how do we then address this social issue of violence, whether it's gun violence or um, who gets criminalized and who gets locked up and who serves time in terms of double digits and who gets released, who gets reintegrated in society, and do we get a, get rid of a mandatory minimum, minimum sentencing? Um, these are issues that are all 
in several ways important and interrelated, starting with Obama's uh, move on gun control. Secondly, when we talk about the politics of naming who is, in fact, a criminal, and lastly, this second chance initiative. In many ways, all three topics are interrelated. Are, are, are you say we, we have been too easy to criminalize both in, in word and in deed? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, so, I mean, to, to, uh, to Evelyn's point, I mean, we, we were talking earlier, Connie, about whether or not these, these issues indeed were, were interrelated in this way. And I guess, I, I guess as we start to draw the threads together, they are. Yeah, no, I think they are. Um, I think in some ways what Governor Malloy is really doing, it actually connects to a show that you did, I think, yesterday, which is to what degree does our Constitution actually work in this country? In a lot of ways, it doesn't. It doesn't really deliver the kinds of protections and guarantees that it's supposed to do. Um, you know, when looking at the comprehensive list in the New York Times editorial, I mean, like the bail system is co- completely a mess and it really does amount to assist. It does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. It makes it actually, I mean, it's supposed to create an opportunity for someone who has not been tried and convicted of something to be free until he or she is tried and convicted. It does the opposite right now, which is keep people stalled in prisons without, you know, without trial for long periods of time. Stuff like that really needs to be looked at. And I, I do think Malloy gets a tip of the cap for looking at it comprehensively. And, and, uh, Paz, quickly on, on this, as we look ahead to this next legislative session, it being buoyed by this Times editorial and some of the stuff that he's getting from around the country, I mean, do we start to, to see more initiatives like this over the course of this next legislative session? One of the governor's biggest initiatives on changing how people are treated by the court system up to the age of 25, that will be controversial. That will be difficult. Uh, The correction commissioner, Scott Semple, has made clear he can treat people who are already sentenced differently and take advantage of the science that is out there about the development of the human brain that the judgment centers aren't fully developed until – 25. So I don't know. The longest running story here on where we live. We've talked about this as often as possible. This whole idea of brain development is it's nice to see Mike Lawler, other people at the state really, really taking this to heart, that that it matters how well developed your brain is before the age of 30. Right. And the politics have have changed. The crime rate's coming down. Crime in Connecticut's at a 40-year low. This gives the policymakers space, political space. In the case of the prisons, literal space. I believe the governor is going to announce the closing of another prison today. He's got a press conference in Niantic, and I'm pretty sure that's part of the agenda. Um, So we are at a time where a lot of the political heat has come out of that issue. There is a racial aspect to this as – as the as drug crimes have become more racially diverse, as more whites are caught up in, in opioids, that type of thing, society does take a different look at how should we treat people who get mixed up with drugs. I, and also, yeah, giving some credit to The New York Times here, this was another another piece that they did not too terribly long ago, Evelyn, in which it, it said one of the more obvious things that I think we all know, which is all of a sudden there's a whole lot of suburban people saying, you know, these drug sensing laws, not such a great deal whenever my kid is going for a long stretch because of heroin. Well, absolutely. I can't um, disagree with your your observation there. Um, you know, a last thought with regard to Malloy's initiative, I, I, I think it speaks to a lot of the press attention that's been devoted to law enforcement opposite um, black victims who have been shot and killed on site, whether it's Tamir Rice, who's already been mentioned this afternoon, excuse me, this morning. Um, there's an increase. Um, there's at least an effort to increase police accountability through the use of body cameras. That's also part of the program.
Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we had a little bit of good news uh, in the press recently for Governor Malloy. We're going to start the next segment with maybe a little bit of bad news. General Electric may really be heading out of state. We'll also be talking about the minor league baseball stadium in Hartford. Yeah, I know there's a whole, a whole lot to talk about around that, but it seems as though we might not start the season in Hartford. Who would have thunk? That's coming up next in the Wheelhouse, where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with Pura Chairman Arthur House about uh, utilities across the state and some of the issues concerning them. We'll also find out how residents of Flint, Michigan, are coping with that city's water contamination crisis and why it actually matters to the rest of us here. That's tomorrow's Where We Live. We're in the wheelhouse, a weekly news roundtable. Quickly, we'll go to a new report from Fox Business that says General Electric is more likely to move out of Connecticut than not. Sources in the report said the decision comes after a, quote, lackluster presentation by Governor Malloy in December. So now do we know? No, Paz, is GE actually leaving? No, we don't. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and the, the issue here will be if they exit, where do they go and how do they frame that exit? That will determine how much of a political blow uh, will land on Governor Malloy. I mean, if they leave, there's no question it will be bad news. That will be uh, a political loss for the governor. Uh, it will be an embarrassment to the state. But it could be mitigated if, for example, they jump across the border to New York, where the tax structure, by the way, is not much friendlier than Connecticut's. And if the reasons have more to do with internal GE needs about proximity to other GE offices. So we'll see. But it's, it, you know, look, the the pundits on Fox will, will go crazy. Uh, the bottom line will be, how open will GE if be if they leave about precisely the reason why they're moving? Minor league baseball officials are looking at contingency plans in case the future home of the Hartford Yard Goats is not ready for opening day. Here's Hartford Stadium Authority Chairman I. Charles Matthews during a meeting yesterday. Time is important. I think we do have to give the Eastern League and the ball team a date certain, and we can't do that as we speak. Uh, so I do think we're in jeopardy of not playing ball, I hate keep saying it, in 2016 if we can't nail this thing down sooner rather than later. So a lot of blame is being thrown around around who, whose fault it is that the stadium is going to be built in time. Eastern League uh, President Joe McCathrin was in attendance in this meeting. He said he was lied to, but, but baseball will be played, not necessarily in Hartford. And I will have a plan for all 142 games in the Eastern League, and it might be painful and it might not work. But I'll tell you what, that pain's going to be shared. And there's a day of reckoning. <laughs> it was quite an amazing little speech that he gave, Colin. This is talking about the minor league baseball season. Where are the Akron rubber ducks going to play in April of next year? So, I don't know. We're not surprised terribly that the baseball stadium isn't going to be open in time. Right. I mean, first of all, I believe the Akron uh, rubber ducks play in a stadium that cost $31 million to build in 1997, which still is not $60 million. Uh, and I mean, one of the things that I've believed from the very beginning is that this, the, the price tag on the stadium was kind of an almost arbitrarily reached number. It doesn't um, correspond very well with other Eastern League stadium construction costs or anything. I, I don't know where the number came from. And this is this is a horrible mess. I mean, it's like really a horrible mess. And it's very likely to go to the, the sort of the dispute with the contractor is likely to go from mediation and possibly to court. If that happens, obviously, that's a long process. And, and I, I, I actually, you know, usually when you look at some story like this, you sort of think, well, I can see a kind of path out of this. 
And I don't really see a path out of this right now. I see something. I see a deal that has collapsed, and, and I'm not really. It's not clear to me how they resolve this. I think that their best path to success would be to scale down the size of the project significantly, so that I mean, and some of that is obviously Landino has already built some of this at a certain scale. So and Bob Landino is the developer yeah. who's, who's talked to us on the program before yeah. about this. I don't know. I don't know what they can, how much they can fool around with, with what they can tweak to cut costs right now. But other than that, I don't see a way out of this. Go ahead, I, I think they'll scale it down. I think the city ultimately uh, may have to pony up a little bit more. The developers may clear he's willing to. Uh, the city has $56 million in sunk costs. They're not in a position to walk away over another you know, if it's splitting the difference. Uh, Pedro Cigar is lucky he wasn't reelected because uh, trying to <laughs> explain this and the cover, the cover, I will say, the, you know, I have not covered this directly. The coverage has been very confusing. Uh, the developer says uh, the city breached its agreement. Well, did the developer serve notice? I, I mean, I'm familiar with with construction litigation. You, you put this, you know, you put your client on notice. You give them a chance to cure the defect. Did that happen? Are there are there penalties built in this contract on on when you can when you deliver it and at what cost? I mean, these are basic questions I have not seen laid out anywhere. And, and of course, a brand new mayor gets to inherit this entire mess, Evelyn, in a city that has a lot of other things to worry about and try to fix, other than whether or not a baseball stadium gets built in April. I mean, I'm not surprised with regard to this outcome. How many times have we? Um, just in building your own home, you've missed the mark in terms of some deadline when you were ready to move in. I mean, it's not um, uncommon for you to make those changes with a cost attached to them, obviously. And so similarly, we just hope this does not end up in the courts. And we do hope that they can come close to that final deadline so we could actually see some baseball. I mean, I've done construction projects where it's clear if I change something, this is what it's going to cost, and it's I'm on the hook for the added cost. Do I say yes or no? In this case, um, there was a question as to how much structural steel suddenly they required. Well, what, they didn't know that up front? supposed to know that. I mean, it's really bizarre. Well, look, speaking of bizarre, we'll, we'll, we'll end with this. We want to follow up on the story we talked about last week. It has to do with the publisher and editor of the New Britain Herald and the Bristol Press. Michael Schroeder uh, seems now, it's quite obvious, wrote this piece under the name Edward Clarkin. It has to do with uh, Sheldon Adelson. It has to do with the Las Vegas courts. And he kind of came out and sort of, I don't know, apologized in a letter to readers, Colin? He apologized, but in a way that really further clouded the issue. I mean, this, it's it's an apology, but it's not a clarification, and it doesn't need what need what needed it doesn't do what needed to be done. Uh, the thing, the paragraph that bothers me the most, he says, as editor and publisher, I take full responsibility for the assignment, publication, and editing of the story, and for these failures. It was a combination of writing and reporting from multiple sources with anonymity promised, in this case inappropriately. That's why a pseudonym, Edward Clarkin, which had been used before, was used in this instance. We have eliminated this practice. None of this makes any sense in any journalistic universe that I'm familiar with. We're we're familiar with anonymity promised to sources. It's not always a good idea, but we we know about that. But not anonymity promised to the people who do the writing and reporting, which is what he's saying, that they promised anonymity to the people who wrote and reported this story. And that's a – I mean basically he still needs to say – who wrote this story? Where did it come from? You know, th- that's the j- journalistic 
covenant that's been violated. And I just want to say, and I hate to do this because he's an old friend and an old colleague, but Jim Smith, who's a former editor at these papers and a former Hartford Current editor, and now the president of the Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information, has a letter sticking up for this guy in the newspaper today saying basically he's apologized, now we should forgive him. He hasn't. He has to explain who wrote this story. And as, as journalists, we have to insist on that standard. I don't know how the Connecticut Council of Freedom of Information can hold anybody else to standards if they're not willing to hold a newspaper to the standard of, standard of saying who's reporting and writing your stories. I mean, I think of past examples of people who have basically lost their jobs over something like this. When you talk about ethics, this is the matter at hand, and this is a prime example. I agree entirely with his comments. Uh, Paz, last thought? Every news organization is periodically tested on how it covers itself, and I think we all can agree that so far the Bristol Press and the Britain Herald have failed miserably on that score. And we've heard from uh, from Steve Collins, the reporter who who quit his job at the Bristol uh, Press after this, and he came on Collins' show and talked about it. Uh, in a note, he says, it's not a genuine apology. In order to apologize properly, you first have to explain what you did, and that's actually sort of sort of part of it. Um, I wouldn't want to end our show today without a note of congratulations to two former colleagues who just got essentially the same high-level communications jobs in two very different Democratic administrations. Former Where We Live producer and Colin McEnroe show guest host Samaya Hernandez is now leading the communications efforts in the new administration of Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin. Congratulations to you. Obviously, you, you have a lot to deal with with this uh, stadium uh, issue and, and other things happening in the city of Hartford. And now we learn today that former reporter and Where We Live guest host Av Harris is the new communications director for Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam, something he's been doing for a little bit of time on the side. And now Av is, is formally ensconced in this mayor's office. I, I I think it points to something very important, Colin, which is all the really important things uh, in, that happen in Connecticut point right back to this program. True. And I think we should send large bottles of ibuprofen to both of them. <laughs> They're going to have a lot of headaches. There are going to be a lot of headaches in those jobs. But truly, two, two good friends, uh, congratulations in those positions. I want to thank our panelists today on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you, Mr. Dankowski. And you can join me and Colin in two weeks on the 19th of January for our second ever Wheelhouse house uncensored event we'll be doing it at the tavern in new haven it's right downtown we'll be talking about the 2016 presidential election and much more with some wheelhouse regulars we'll be posting more details about the event on our facebook and twitter pages at where we live hope you can join us for that also joining us today in the wheelhouse mark pazniokas capital bureau chief for the connecticut mirror thanks so much paz happy new year and happy new year to you and thank you also to evelyn Simeon, an associate professor in the department of political science and the institute for africana studies at the university of connecticut evelyn always good to see you thanks so much thank you our program is produced today by Tucker Ives with help from Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. Continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.